The story this morning in the Gospel of Luke is Mary's. Prior to the reading, we heard about the angel that came to visit her and announced to her uh, that she would be bringing in the Christ child into the world. But she's in context 2,000 years ago, a nobody. She's no one from nowhere. In, in antiquity, there is no historian who lists or names or mentions at all, even a side note, about the city of Nazareth. It does not appear on any of the maps. She is really just a girl, no one from nowhere. According to the, the story in, in chapter 1, Luke says that she was perplexed. Well, not really. The English translation of the word that Luke uses is perplexed. The Greek word that he uses literally means terrified. She's overwhelmed. She's, as we might say, scared to death, confused, frightened, worried, all of the above, all built into that, that single idea. And, and why wouldn't she be? The angel announced to her earlier, you will bring the one who will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. Now we hear those phrases and we're comfortable with them. We've heard them, if you've been in the church all your life, you've heard it all your life. If you only come to church around during December and Christmas Eve, you've still heard those words and they appear in our Christmas carols and in our anthems and, and more. They're on our Christmas cards even. But in Mary's day, this nobody from nowhere is being told by the angel that she will bring the Son of God into the world. That's imperial language. That phrase was reserved for the son of Caesar. It was a way of saying, this one who's coming in to rule in the name of Rome is like unto God. And for Mary, when she hears this, and the same thing would have been true for Luke's audience, when they hear these phrases, it sounds rebellious. It sounds like something is happening, like the world is being turned upside down. It's really God's way of proclaiming to the world through this girl, this young woman, that things are different now. You think that the way to peace is through might and weaponry and armies and spears and chariots and more, and this is a proclamation, this is a clear declaration that things are turning upside down. No longer will the cycle of violence continue on. This one comes in the name of ending the violence, proclaiming, as he will 30 years later, the love of God given, given to the world. And so then after this angel communicates all of this, and she hears it clearly. Do you remember what she says at the end of that encounter with the angel? She quotes John Lennon and Paul McCartney. <laughs> do, you, do you remember what she says? So, do we have Beatles fans? Are the Beatles, am I too old? Uh, let it be. Let it be. Let it be according to, to me, according to your word. Let it be. Now, I know that sounds like maybe a resignation or, or maybe she's just sort of saying, okay, I, I guess I don't have any choice. No, not at all. This is a statement of faith. This is a statement of trust. This is her putting her, her courage on the line and saying, I will move forward trusting that you are with me. Let it be, God. Let it be that you are with me in this moment, in this time, in this quest, in this task. It's something like what happened on 9-11. On you remember the story of Flight 93, do you not? Word had gotten around about the attacks on the World Trade Center. There were several passengers and crew on Flight 93 that noticed something strange was going on on their plane. They got on their phones. They heard about the attacks. Then suddenly the terrorists took over the plane. Todd Beamer, do you remember that name? 
seated in the back, was on the phone trying to get to his wife. Instead, his phone was, his call was routed through the FBI. And he explained to the FBI what he was experiencing, what he was seeing, what was happening. And then the passengers got together with a couple of the crews, a couple of the flight attendants, and they made, a, they made a pact. We're going to storm the cockpit. We're going to do everything we can to turn this plane around. And if we have to, we'll, we'll take it down. His last words were, let's roll. It's an act of faith and trust in humanity. And I would dare say in God that no matter what happened, in some way, right would be made real. So step forward and encourage. It's something like that that Mary is, Mary is doing here. She's stepping forward in courage and faith and trust, believing that no matter what happens, somehow God will be present in the midst of it. And so right here we get a, we get a picture at the beginning of Luke's gospel of, of an all-inclusive, loving overwhelmingly kind, gracious, and forgiving God who wants to bring the world together into what we call peace and shalom. And then in the text that you just heard read a moment ago, we hear that, that she leaves with haste to the hill country of, Ju of Judea. Now, I know this is a lot of Bible. I've got a lot of Bible at the beginning of this sermon, but, but stay with me here a moment. Sometimes we read through these texts so fast we don't really notice what's happening. Not only is let it be a statement of, of courage, but this action here, now that she's pregnant, now that she knows what's happening, she makes with haste to go to the Judean hill country to see her cousin Elizabeth, who by the way is also pregnant with a miraculous baby. Elizabeth, very, very old, well past the age of childbearing. Mary wants to go and see her and talk about their pregnancies. But that one line, she made with haste and went to the Judean hill country. Think about this. She's up in Nazareth. The Judean hill country is 80 miles away. Luke just says it like it's a matter of fact. No mention of how she got there. No mention of a man having to help her ride on a donkey or anything. She's pregnant. We don't know how far along, probably five or six months, somewhere like that. She makes this journey down. What Luke is saying to us, do you see the determination? Do you see the desire to, to get this good news out into the world? It is a way for Mary to proclaim, it is a way for Luke to say, she doesn't need anyone else's help but God's. She is on her own, strong, firm, courageous. What a, what a beautiful picture it, it is. And she goes to see her, her cousin Elizabeth, who I said is carrying a, a, also a, a miraculous child. This one is John the Baptist. He'll be the one who will set the way for Jesus, who will prepare the wilderness and the world, really, for the message that Jesus comes to bring. They encounter each other, and I hope you heard this in the text. They encounter each other, and the, and the, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy, Luke's gospel said. Now, that, now, he presents that as kind of a miracle, that somehow John the Baptist recognized from, from the womb that this was his cousin and he was the Messiah and it's presented as a miraculous thing. Uh, I'm here to tell you, though, I've, I've ex well, I haven't directly experienced it, but I, but I have a story of somebody who did. When Julie, my wife Julie, was pregnant with our firstborn, she came to church. She was about five, maybe six, maybe six months along. And I was the worship leader that day. I wasn't the preacher, but I was the worship leader. And Julie was sitting out in the pews on the right side about halfway back. And it was time for the moment for children. In that congregation, all the children were invited to the front. And I was the associate minister, and so I got to do that every Sunday. And I sat down on the chancel, and all the kids came down, and I said, good morning, children. And Julie swears that our oldest inside leapt. He leaped. He moved around. He kicked. Have you seen that movie, The Alien? Have you seen The Alien? 
Our, our, our son, Nate, we knew he was going to be a hyperactive child because he was hyperactive in the womb. And Julie swears that morning, every time I spoke, he'd start spinning around and kicking and moving. And, and when I was quiet, he'd stop moving. Now, if you don't believe that's true, you tell Julie, not me. <laughs> See, this, it's, it's an amazing, it's two amazing stories, a virgin birth and an older woman, both pregnant with children who are going to bring a message that will change the world. These marginalized, powerless nobodies from nowhere are the ones that God chooses to bring this child in. And it's not in, it's not in, in Rome. It, it's not in Athens. It's, it's not further south and east in Jerusalem. It's in the middle of nowhere. In, and, and keep this in mind. In antiquity, Mary, childless, and Elizabeth, childless, before they're pregnant, are really seen by their societies as not much more than somebody who really failed. Their only job, in, oftentimes in antiquity for a woman, was to simply bring children into the world and, and take care of them. So even, even in that way, they're even more marginalized. In fact, at one point, Mary proclaims earlier in the text, I am the servant of the Lord. And we could be tempted there to say, oh, the, the word for servant in Greek is doulos, and that means slave. And this really proposes, in fact, people have done this for centuries. It really shows that women, even, even Mary, the mother of Jesus, are to be subservient to men. They're to serve men and be slaves to men if, if necessary. And you can find that kind of theology even alive and around today. What Mary is saying when she says, I am the servant of the Lord, what she's proclaiming is something that was proclaimed by men as prophets and kings and apostles. She uses a similar kind of phrasing. She doesn't make a speech about it. She doesn't make a, give a sermon on it. She simply says, I'm the servant of the Lord. And she therefore aligns herself with the great prophets and kings of Israel's past and the apostles and evangelists of Christianity's future. What does it mean that God is doing this, this work, through these who otherwise were seen as no one, as nobodies? I hope you also heard as Mary and Elizabeth encounter each other that Elizabeth kind of becomes a preacher. She says, blessed are you and blessed is the child. She's, she's proclaiming that this new thing is something amazing and wonderful to, to behold. She uses the word for blessed in Greek, makaria. It's the same word that Jesus would use 30 years later in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, you remember? Blessed are the meek. I, I am certain that when Jesus wrote, first wrote the Sermon on the Mount, in his first draft especially, he remembered the story of his mother receiving a blessing from their cousin Elizabeth. That's the beauty of paying attention to these details in the text, of seeing how Frankly, even today, this word is still desperately needed by the world. How inclusive it is, how overwhelmingly loving it is, and how it says there is no one, no one outside of the grace and love of God. What they're doing is they're bringing an old word into a new reality. Isn't that what we do, especially at this season? We hear these old words, uh, uh, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to all. We, 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 play, we play those on our, our stereos. We hear them in our anthems. We, hear, we see them on our Christmas cards. We bring these old words from our past 
and we proclaim this is the reality in which we want to live. Now, some people criticize that. I remember a few years ago having lunch with a, a fairly prominent uh, businessman in, in Kansas City, and he was saying some nice things, and he said, you know, you preach a lot about love, and can we get clear about this? Let's just, let's just pay attention to the way the world works. You can talk all you want about love. You can name it in the pulpit all you want, but there's a hard reality about the way the world works, and you better pay attention to that. That's what we need. We need more of those kind of messages. Well, I've done some research. You won't be surprised to learn this. Turns out he's wrong. The researchers say this, that when we name something, we're claiming a new reality. I, I want to get the exact word for you, right? exact phrase. It is a performative utterance. When you stand up in public and you make a proclamation, you're saying, this is the reality in which I want to live. Have you been to a wedding before? Have you been to one here in this space? The last wedding I did was right here on the chancel of this sanctuary. I looked at the bride and the groom, and I asked them, do you? Do you? And when they said, I do, they named something new. It was a new relationship, a new life, a new, a new covenant, a new promise. It's in the naming. It's in the speaking of the words that something new happens. When, when Elizabeth comes to Mary and proclaims to her, blessed are you, it's our way. It's her way of saying, this is a new reality and a new world. When we do the same thing on Christmas Eve, it's as though we're saying to ourselves and to the world, this again is the new reality. We've been saying it every year for 2,000 years, and we're going to say it for as long as necessary until that reality is made true and made real in our lives. But I know, I know sometimes it can just be overwhelming. You think of all the parties and the dinners and the shopping and the traveling and, and the guests and your strange Uncle Bob from Nebraska and all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that all adds up to just feeling overwhelmed. The other day, Julie and I were at the mall at, at Easton just enjoying a, a nice, more or less relaxing day shopping around when I ran into a church member. I won't tell you if they're a male, male or female, but I said, hi, how are you doing? Nice to see you. How are you? Just sort of that, that American sort of, you know, hey, how are you doing? And the one let out this big, oh. I said, wow, sounds like there's a story there. And they smiled and said, yeah, but I'm not even sure where that sigh's coming from. It, it reminded me of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, that the Spirit of God sometimes intercedes for us. This, these are Paul's words, with sighs too deep for words. I, I suspect those kind of sighs come most often in the season of Advent and at Christmas. In the midst of everything that we're doing, all the stuff, the running around from here to there and the rest. Or maybe, maybe there's no running around and the ones you've loved are, are gone and the sighs come, and we wonder what that one at Easton needs. What we need is a reminder of this, these old words spoken by this, this old woman and her cousin, the young girl. Are you ready for a blessing? Are you ready to find something new? I, that's why I love the little song we just sang a few moments ago, like a child, like a friend, Jesus comes. It's a reminder to us that it's in the most vulnerable places where we experience the presence of God. 
that Jesus comes like a child, naked, hungry, cold, desperate, desperate for his mother and for his father to care for him. It's in those most vulnerable places, in that sigh, that deep sigh, where God is preparing to do something new in your life. A few years ago, I had a serious kidney infection. It landed me in the hospital. I was in the hospital for two nights and, and three days. It was pretty scary. It was no big deal in the long run, but I was frightened in the moment. I don't like being ill. I don't know anybody who does like that. I'm worried if you do. <clears throat> but in that place, I'll never forget the nurse who came in the middle of the night when I was frightened and scared and in tremendous pain. She put her hand on my shoulder. She said, I, I have something for the pain and don't be afraid, we're all right here. The next morning, the doctor came in, sat down next to me, and in a quiet voice said, you know we're doing everything we can to help you. And there's the presence of my wife, silent, quiet, sitting nearby, keeping watch. Have you had a moment like that when you sense something sacred, something holy, Something amazing was happening. You see, it's in the impending birth of a peasant's child who will come as vulnerable as that, even more so, that we see the preciousness of God's love being made real. You know, I, I, never, I never really realized until I became a parent why other parents say, oh, it doesn't matter how old my kid gets, even now that he's an adult, when I look at him, I still see a baby. But those of you who are, are parents, did you still see that? You look at your kid, I don't care if he's eight or 18 or 88, you still look at him or her like a child, like a baby. I, I remember when our, our oldest, Nate, was three years old. Stephen hadn't been born yet, but uh, we went to Christmas Eve service and came home and Santa visited our house. Now, Nate's 28 now and he's, he's doing really well and he's a fashion consultant and if you need some help on your clothes, call me. I've got a number for you. You can talk to Nate later. But I, when I look at that guy, that 28-year-old successful guy that he is now, I still see that little three-year-old who was so excited on Christmas Eve, he couldn't believe it. Santa was in his house with a real bag of gifts and presents were going around the tree. And the next day, Nate, that little three-year-old just talked all day. He popped out of the womb talking, by the way. And he just talked, Daddy, did you see Santa? Daddy was, Daddy, Santa was here. Where were you, Daddy? Santa was here. It was so fun seeing Santa. I had so much fun. And I said, well, what was he like? What did you think? And he said, he was fatter in person than I expected. <laughs> yeah, a sweet moment. Uh, Stephen is, is about to graduate from University of Missouri in Kansas City. He's an actor. We think he's going to be a star. We love watching him, but I, I can't look at that guy. We were just there with both of them at Thanksgiving. I can't look at him and not think of the time when he was five. And he had to have some adenoids out. No big deal unless it's you, I guess. And the doctor came out and said, would one of you like to hold him while we apply the anesthesia? I said, sure. I went back there and I, I cradled my boy in my arms. And the doctor came over and said some nice words to Stephen and gave him the medicine and he went limp. His little feet just dangling, his arms off to the side. It's my boy, my my baby. When, when I came out of there and sat down with Julie, she said, are you okay? And there were tears. And I said, no, I don't ever want to see that again or feel that again. It's our baby. I, I, wonder, I wonder if Mary felt something like that when she stood at the cross 
And she saw her baby, naked, thirsty, helpless, vulnerable. It's, it's Frederick Buechner who says that, that when someone we love suffers, we suffer with them. And in the suffering, the love is made real. Like a child and a friend, God's love is made real to us. My prayer this season for you and for me, for us, is that we will have the faith and the trust and the courage of Mary to stand before God and say, let it be. Let it be.